Chapter 35 of The Night Horseman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Night Horseman by Max Brand. Chapter 35 Pale Annie. Even in Elkhead there were fires this day. In the Gilead Saloon, one might have thought that the liquid heat which the men had invited would serve in place of stoves. But the proprietor, Pale Annie, had an eye to form and when the sky was gray, he always lighted the stove. Pale Annie he was called, because his real name was Anderson Hallberry Sandringham. That name had been a great aid to him when he was an undertaker in Kansas City. But Anderson Hallberry Sandringham had fallen from the straight and narrow path of good undertakers some years before, and he had sought refuge in the mountain desert where most things prosper, except sheriffs and grass. He was fully six inches more than six feet in height, and his face was so long and pale that even Haw Haw Langley seemed cheerful beside the ex-undertaker. In Kansas City this had been much prized, for that single face could lend solemnity to any funeral. In Elkhead it was hardly less of an asset. People came out of curiosity to see Pale Annie behind the bar with his tall silk hat, which he could never bring himself to lay aside, among the cobwebs of the rafters. They came out of curiosity, and they remained to drink, which is a habit in the mountain desert. A traveling drummer or a patent medicine man had offered Pale Annie a handsome stake to simply go about with him and lend the sanction of his face to the talk of the drummer. But Pale Annie had discovered a veritable philosopher's stone in Elkhead, and he was literally turning whiskey into gold. This day was even more prosperous than usual for Pale Annie, for the gray weather and the chilly air made men glad of the warmth, both external and internal, which Pale Annie possessed in his barroom. His dexterous hands were never for a moment still at the bar, either setting out drinks or making change except when he walked out and threw a fresh feed into the fire, and stirred up the ruddy depths of the stove with a tall poker. It was so long, indeed, that it might have served even Pale Annie for a cane, and it was a plain, untapered bar of iron which the blacksmith had given him as the price of a drink on a day. He needed a large poker, however, for there was only the one stove in the entire big room, and it was a giant of its kind, as capacious as a hogshead. This day Pale Annie kept it red-hot, so that the warmth might penetrate to the door on the one hand, and to the rear of the room where the tables and chairs were on the other. Since Pale Annie's crowd took little exercise except for bending their elbows now and again, and since the majority of them had been in the place fully half the day, by ten in the evening, sounds of hilarity began to rise from the saloon. Solemn-faced men, who had remained in their places for hour after hour, industriously putting away the red-eye, now showed symptoms of life. Some of them discovered hitherto hidden talents as singers, and they would rise from their places, remove their hats, open their bearded mouths, and burst into song. An antiquarian, who had washed gold in forty-nine, and done nothing the rest of his life, say, grow a prodigious set of pure white whiskers, sprang from his place, and did a hoe-down that ravished the beholders. 
Thrice he was compelled to return to the floor, and in the end his performance was only stopped by an attack of sciatica. Two strong men carried him back to his chair and wept over him, and there was another drink all around. In this scene of universal joy there were two places of shadow, for at the rear end of the room, almost out of reach of the lantern light, sat Haw Haw Langley and Max Strann. The more Haw Haw Langley drank, the more cadaverous grew his face, until in the end it was almost as solemn as that of Pale Annie himself. As for Max Strann, he seldom drank at all. A full hour had just elapsed since either of them spoke, yet Haw Haw Langley said, as if in answer to a remark, "'He's heard too much about you, Mac. He ain't no such fool as to come to Elkhead.' "'He ain't had time,' answered the giant. "'Ain't had time all these days? Wait till his dog gets well. He'll follow the dog to Elkhead.' "'Why, Mac, that trail's been washed out long ago. The wind the other day would have knocked out any trail less than a big wagon.' "'It won't wash out the trail for that dog,' said Mac Strann calmly. "'Well,' snarled Haw Haw, "'I gotta be getting back home pretty soon. "'I ain't rolling in coin the way you are, Mac.' The other returned no answer, but let his eyes rove vacantly over the room, and since his head was turned the other way, Haw Haw Langley allowed a sneer to twist at his lips for a moment. "'If I had the price,' he said, "'we'd have another drink.' "'I ain't drinkin', answered the giant monotonously. "'Then I'll go up and bum one off a of pale Annie. "'About time he come through with a little charity.' "'So he unfurled his length and stalked through the crowd up to the bar. "'Here he leaned and confidentially whispered in the ear of pale Annie, "'Partner, I've been sprinkling dust for a long time in here, "'and there ain't been any reward. I'm dry, Annie.' "'Pale Annie regarded him with grave disapproval.' My friend, he said solemnly, liquor is the real root of all evil. For my part, I quench my thirst with water. There's a tub over there in the corner with a dipper handy. Don't mention it. I didn't thank you, said Haw Haw Langley furiously. Damn tightwad, say I. The long hand of Pale Annie curled affectionately around the neck of an empty bottle. I didn't quite gather what you said, he remarked courteously and leaned across the bar within striking distance. "'I'll tell you later,' remarked Haw Haw sullenly, and turned his shoulder to the bar. As he did so, two comparatively recent arrivals came up beside him. They were fresh from a couple of months of range-finding, and they had been quenching a concentrated thirst by concentrated effort. Haw Haw Langley looked them over, sighed with relief and then instantly produced Durham and the brown papers. He paused in the midst of rolling his cigarette, and offered them to the nearest fellow. Smoke, he asked. Now a man of the mountain desert knows a great many things, but he does not know how to refuse. The proffer of a gift embarrasses him, but he knows no way of avoiding it. Also, he never rests easy until he has made some return. "'Sure,' said the man, and gathered in the tobacco and papers. "'Thanks.' He covertly dropped the cigarette which he had just lighted, and stepped on it. Then he rolled another from Haw Haw's materials. The while he kept an uneasy eye on his new companion. "'Drinkin?' he asked at length. 
"'Not just now,' said Haw Haw carelessly. "'Oh, he's got room for another,' protested the other, still more in earnest as he saw his chance of return disappearing. "'All right, then,' said Haw Haw. "'Just one more.' And he poured a glass to the brim, waved it gracefully towards the others without spilling a drop, and downed it at a gulp. "'Been in town long?' he asked. "'Not long enough to find any action,' answered the other. The eye of Haw Haw Langley brightened. He looked over the two carefully. The one had black hair and the other red, but they were obviously brothers, both tall, thick-shouldered, square-jawed, and pug-nosed. There was Irish blood in that twain. The fire in their eyes could have come from only one place on earth. And Haw Haw grinned and looked down the length of the room to where Max Strand sat, a heavy, inert mass, his fleshy forehead puckered into a half-frown of animal wistfulness. "'You ain't the only ones,' he said to his companion at the bar. "'They's a man in town who says they don't turn out any two men in this range that could give him action.' "'The hell,' grunted he, of the red hair, and he looked down to his blunt-knuckled hands. "'S matter of fact,' continued Hall easily, "'he's right here now.' He looked again towards Max Strand and remembered once more the drink which Max might so easily have purchased for him. "'It ain't Pale Annie, is it?' asked the black-haired man, casting a dubious glance up and down the vast frame of the undertaker. "'Him? Not half,' grinned Haw Haw. "'It's a fat fella, down to the end of the bar. I guess he's been drinking some. Kind of off his nut.' He indicated Max Strand. "'He looks to me,' said the red-haired man, setting his jaw, "'like a fellow that ain't too old to learn one more thing about the range in these parts.' "'He looks to me,' chimed in the black-haired brother, "'like a fellow that might be taught something right here in Pale Annie's barroom. "'Anyway, he's got room at his table for two more.' So saying, the two swallowed their drinks and rumbled casually down the length of the room until they came to the table where Max Strand sat. Haw Haw Langley followed at a discreet distance and came within earshot to hear the deep voice of Max Strand rumbling. Sorry, gents, but that chair's took. The black-haired man sank into the indicated chair. You're right, he announced calmly. Anyone could see with half an eye that you ain't a fool. It's took by me. And he grinned impudently in the face of Max Strand. The latter, who had been sitting with slightly bent head, now raised it and looked the pair over carelessly. There was in his eye the same dumb curiosity which Haw Haw Langley had seen many a time in the eye of a bull, leader of the herd. The giant explained carefully, I mean, there's a friend of mine that's been sitting in that chair. If I ain't your friend, answered the black-haired brother instantly, it ain't any fault of mine. Lay it up to yourself, partner. Max Strand stretched out his hand on the surface of the table. He said, I got an idea. You'd better get out of that chair. The other turned his head slowly on all sides and then looked Max Strand full in the face. Maybe there's something wrong with my eyes, he said, but I don't see no reason. The little dialogue had lasted long enough to focus all eyes on the table at the end of the room, and therefore there were many witnesses to what followed. The arm of Max Strand shot out, his hand fastened in the collar of the black-haired man's shirt, and the latter was raised from his seat 
and propelled to one side by a convulsive jerk. He probably would have been sent crashing into the bar had not his shirt failed under the strain. It ripped in two at the shoulders, and the seeker after action, naked to the waist, went reeling back to the middle of the room before he gained his balance. After him went Max Strand, with an agility astonishing in that squat, formless bulk. His long arms were outstretched and his fingers tensed, and in his face there was an uncanny joy. His lip had lifted in that peculiarly disheartening sneer. He was not a pace from him of the black hair when a yell of rage behind him and the other brother leaped through the air and landed on Mac Strand's back. He doubled up, slipped his arms behind him, and the next instant, without visible reason, the red-headed man hurtled through the air and smashed against the bar with a jolt that sent glassware shivering and singing. Then he relaxed on the floor, a twisted and foolish-looking mass. As for the seeker after action, he had at first reached after his revolver, but he changed his mind at the last instant, and instead picked up the great poker which leaned against the stove. It was a ponderous weapon, and he had to wield it in both hands. As he swung it around his head, there was a yell from men ducking out of the way, and Pale Annie curled his hand again around his favorite empty bottle. He had no good opportunity to demonstrate its efficiency, however. Max Strand, crouching in a position from which he had catapulted the red-haired man, cast upwards a single glance at the other brother, and then he sprang in. The poker hissed through the air with the vigor of a strong man's arms behind it, and it would have cracked the head of Max Strand like an empty eggshell if it had hit its mark. But it was heaved too high, and Max Strand went in like a football player rushing the line, almost doubled up against the floor as he ran. His shoulders struck the other hardly higher than the knees, and they went down together. But doing so, the head of Max Strand's victim cracked against the floor, and he also was still. The exploit was greeted by a yell of applause, and then someone proposed a cheer, and it was given. It died off short on the lips of the applauders, however, for it was seen that Max Strand was not yet done with his work, and he went about it in a manner which made men sober suddenly and exchanged glances. First, the stranger dragged the two brothers together, laying one of them face down on the floor. The second he placed over the first, back to back. Next he picked up the long poker from the floor and slipped it under the head and down to the neck of the first man. The bystanders watched in utter silence, with a touch of horror coming now into their eyes. Now Max Strand caught the ends of the iron and began to twist up on them. There was no result at first. He refreshed his hold and tried again. The sleeves of his shirt were seen to swell and then grow hard and taunt with vast play of muscle beneath. His head bowed lower between his shoulders, and those shoulders trembled, and the muscles over them quivered like heat waves rising of a spring morning. There was a creaking now and then the iron was seen to shiver, and then bend slowly. And once it was wrenched out of the horizontal, the motion was more and more rapid, until, when the giant was done with his labors, the ends of the iron overlapped around the necks of the two luckless brothers. Max Strand stepped back and surveyed his work. The rest of the room was in silence, saving the red-headed man, 
who was coming back to consciousness and now withered and groaned feebly. He could not rise, that was manifest, for the thick band of iron tied his neck to the neck of his brother. Upon this scene, Max Strand gazed with a thoughtful air, and then stepped to the side of the room where stood a bucket of dirty water, recently used for mopping behind the bar. This he caught up, returned, and dashed the black, greasy water over the pair. If it had been electricity, it could not have operated more effectively. The two awoke with one mind, and, with a tremendous sputtering and cursing, struggled to regain their feet. It was no easy thing, however, for when one stood up, the other slipped, and in his fall, involved the brother. In the meantime, it made a jest exactly suited to the minds of Elkhead, and shrieks of hysterical laughter rewarded their struggles. Until at length they sat solemnly back to back, easing the pressure of the iron as best they might with their hands. Assembled Elkhead reeled about the room, drunken with laughter. But Max Strand went quietly back to his table and paid no attention to the scene. There is an end to all good things, however, and finally the two brothers concerted action together, rose, and then sidestepped towards the door, dripping the mop water at every step. Obviously they were bound for the blacksmith to lose their collar, and everyone in the saloon knew that the blacksmith was not in town. The old man who had done the hoedown hobbled to the end of the barroom, and before the table of Max Tran made a speech to the effect that Elkhead had everything it needed except laughter, that Max Tran had come to their assistance in that respect, and that if he, the old man, had the power, he would pension such an efficient jester and keep him permanently in the town. To all of this Max Strand paid not the slightest heed, but with his fleshy brow puckered considered the infinite distance. Even the drink which Pale Annie, grateful for the averted riot, placed on the table before him, Max Strand allowed to stand untasted. And it was private stock. It was at this time that Haw Haw Langley made his way back to the table and occupied the contested seat. "'That was a bum play,' he said solemnly to Max Strand. "'When Barry hears about what you done here to two men, "'do you think that he'll ever hit your trail?' "'The other started. "'I never thought about it,' he murmured, "'his thick lips, as always, framing speech with difficulty. "'Do you suppose I ought to go back to the Cumberland place for him?' "'A yell rose at the farther end of the room. "'A wolf! Hey, shoot the damn wolf!' "'You fool!' cried another. He ain't skinny enough to be a wolf. Besides, who ever heard of a tame wolf coming into a barroom? Nevertheless, many a gun was held in readiness, and the men, even the most drunken, fell back to one side and allowed a free passage for the animal. It seemed indeed to be a wolf, and a giant of its kind, and it slunk now with soundless step through the silence of the barroom. Glancing neither to right nor to left, until it came before the table of Max Strand. There it halted and slunk back a little. The upper lip lifted away from the long fangs. Its eyes glittered upon the face of the giant. And then it swung about and slipped out of the barroom, as it had come, in utter silence. In the utter silence, Max Strand leaned across the table to Haw Haw Langley. "'He's come alone this time,' he said. "'But next time he'll bring his master with him.' We'll wait. 
The Adam's apple rose and fell in the throat of Haw Haw. We'll wait, he nodded, and he burst into the harsh, unhuman laughter which had given him his name. End of chapter 35